Welcome. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Medal of Honor podcast, Veteran Stories of Strength, Courage, and Perseverance. Welcome. I'm Sharon Pressler, call sign Betty. I grew up in San Bernardino, California, and I joined the military through the ROTC program, Reserve Officer Training Corps, and was commissioned in, uh, in Davis, California. I joined the Air Force because I want to fly jets. And there's two ways to fly jets. One is pay a lot of money and get your own training or join the military and have them train you. And I didn't have a lot of money. So the military seemed my only option at the time and I'm very glad I did. Um, while I was in the Air Force, my, my claim to fame, if you will, is I was the first woman to fly the F-16 in our Air Force. Before that, I spent time as a navigator I got my private pilot's license while I was a navigator, and then the Air Force sent me to pilot training. I flew the Learjet for just over a year, C-21, and then transitioned to the F-16, where I stayed until I retired in 2006. After that, I went to Southwest Airlines and flew for them for 14 years, and since took a retirement from there and totally switched careers, and now I do life coaching and public speaking. Thank you very much. This podcast is brought to you by Acuity Benefit Consulting. Retaining military veteran talent is critical to your bottom line. So give them a specialized resource for the benefit that they value most, VA Disability Compensation. Acuity provides them with an in-depth one-on-one educational session on VA disability benefits curated to your veterans' needs. For more information, contact Navy veteran Ray Hun at acuitybenefitconsulting.com. Again, that is www.acuitybenefitconsulting.com. We, um, wow. My mom and dad got divorced when I was little, and mom raised my sister and I. We basically needed to find ways to pay for college, and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't, hey, mom, my tuition's due. It was, how are you going to pay for school? So, although as much as I wanted to fly, and I loved the idea of flying, I didn't have the extra money to take advantage of that until the Air Force started paying. But the C-21 first, that's what I flew right out of pilot training, and uh, I only flew that for about a year, and then it was... Um, about six months into my time in the in the C-21, Congress changed the combat exclusion law. Up until then, it was against the law for women to be in any combat roles. So in 1993, they changed that law. And the Air Force, as a, as a result of that, chose seven women to be their first women fighter pilots. And I was the first one in the F-16. So it was a very surprising and unexpected transition. I expected to go from the C-21 to, I don't know, a KC-10, or if I was lucky, maybe a C-17 or something. And, and instead, I went to the F-16s. Not at all what I expected, not what I had planned for, but it was a great opportunity. When you came in to be a pilot, an option to be a fighter pilot was not on the table. How does the, I guess, selection process come about in picking what it is that you're going to fly? Yeah, so that has evolved over the years. And when I finished pilot training, the way they did it was they um, 
they rank order everybody in the class. You know, we were joking earlier about it flying being competitive and even in pilot training, it's competitive because you're gonna, when I went through, you got to pick your assignment based on your rank order in the class. And they went from pilot training base to base and the number one person picked theirs and then the number two and the number three and so on. So you got to theoretically pick your assignment. Now, when I picked, I was limited in what I could fly, right? But me being um, kind of a smart aleck. So when I went and talked to the wing commander, it was my turn to pick. And he's like, so Captain Pressler, what would you like? And I'm like, well, sir, that F-16 looks really good. And he just looked at me and said, so what do you really want? And I went, oh, I guess I'll take that C-21 to Andrews. Thank you. Um, and that was it, right? I just didn't have um, the choices. But I was Jeannie Flynn, um, now Jeannie Levitt, and I were in the same class at different bases. And she was, unbeknownst to me, she was lobbying a little harder for women to be allowed to fly fighters. So, um, and then it was, no kidding, six months later, I got a phone call. You need to go talk to this colonel at the Pentagon. And I'm like, I don't talk to colonels and I don't talk to people at the Pentagon. What's going on, right? So I called him and sure enough, um, come down to the office tomorrow and and talk to General Bowles. Would you like to fly that F-16? You could have had a pilot training. And I'm like, uh, yes. So I showed up the next day. I mean, I was just back from vacation. I hadn't even been at work yet. I go to the Pentagon the next morning, meet General Bowles, the general in charge of all personnel for the Air Force. And uh, he sits there and it's me and Jeannie Flynn and Martha McSally. And he tells Jeannie, she's going to go fly the F-15E. Martha, she's going to go fly the A-10. And me, I'm going to go fly the F-16. And I couldn't believe it. I mean, I woke up the day before that, not thinking anything was going to change. And then I'm in the Pentagon. And the next day, I'm at a press conference with General Peak, And then they're, you know, working training dates for me to go fly F-16s. It was kind of crazy, but in a good way. Right. You know, and, and you were in the Army, and I'm sure it's the same way they say in the Air Force, the needs of the Air Force come first. Right? So we're going to get let you pick your assignment, but you're going to pick from what's available when it's your turn to pick, right? You don't just say, I want this, and it magically appears. Um, and it was interesting because I had been a navigator before I went to pilot training. So I was already a captain. I'd been in the Air Force. By the time I graduated pilot training, I'd been in the Air Force five and a half years. So everybody told me that I should go to what's considered a major weapon system. And what that means is you're not going to get retrained out of it. Like we're talking KC-10s, C-17s, C-130s, AWACS, airplanes you're gonna spend most of your career in where the C-21 is a very much a transitional airplane. You go there for three years and then you have to go to something else. So if I was doing what was right for my career, I probably would have picked, I think there was a C-130. No, I couldn't even have a C-130 then. I would have been in a 135 or AWACS. So, but I didn't wanna to go to those airplanes. I'd been a navigator in a 135 and I wanted to do something different. So against career advice, I picked the C-21. The interesting thing is when they went to figure out who was gonna to get to go fly fighters, there were three requirements. One, you had to not be in a major weapon system because the Air Force justified it in saying they were gonna to have to retrain me at some point anyway, so they weren't wasting money by retraining me now. Whereas if I had been in, a 135 or a KC-10 or something like that, I would have been still there. I never would have got to fly the F-16. So, you know, the kind of, you, you don't get a lot of choices in your military career. And I think sometimes there's pressure, and this happens, I'm sure, in civilian life as well, to do the thing that's right, right? The thing that's right for your career as opposed to the thing that you want to do. And I would argue that um, choosing the thing you want to do 
and doing it well because you're passionate about it or you really enjoy it might be better for your career than necessarily doing all the things that you're supposed to do. A navigator, a navigator, is that an enlisted position or an officer position or what? It's, it's still an officer position. This is back, so this back in 1986, yeah, 86, 87. Um, and basically you're giving directions, right? So in a 135, you have the pilot and the, the captain and the co-pilot sitting up front. And then I sit beside them sideways at a desk mm -hmm. and I look at my radar and I plot our position and I use the the stars and the moon and the sun to verify it because we didn't have GPS and everything was a little less accurate. Um, so it's still a, it was still a flying position. I mean, I was in an airplane at least, and I was glad for that. Um, and it was funny because of that combat exclusion law we talked about earlier, when I was in ROTC, I knew I wanted to go be a pilot, right? But at the time, um, each detachment, each ROTC detachment got a certain number of pilot training slots to give out, but they couldn't give them to the women because they were so limited in what we could fly, they had to have us all meet a central selection board. So my year, I met a central selection board, 350 women ROTC cadets met this board and they gave out um, 16 pilot slots and 11 navigator slots. So while I was disappointed because it wasn't what I wanted to do, I figured, well, that's still pretty good. And maybe I should just go do this because I'll still be in an airplane. And then I'll keep working on a way to get to be a pilot. You know, it's one of the other things I, I do talk about when I, when I speak is, you know, it seems like sometimes that I was just really lucky, right? Here I am. I wake up one morning, I get a phone call. Hey, go fly F-16s, right? But there's all these steps along the way where things didn't go the way I wanted them to, where I had to pick another way to get to my goal. And I had to keep working um, and overcoming obstacles that, that, get me in a position to be lucky, right? There's when people, when you look at people and they're successful and you think, oh, that was really a lot of luck. Um, there's probably some luck involved, but there's also probably a lot of hard work back there as well. And people need to keep that in mind as they're pursuing their dreams. It's going to take hard work. It's not just going to be easy. So it doesn't just drop in your lap. It's not like <laughs> this F-16 just kind of dropped. Well, I mean, like an opportunity dropped in your lap, but you still had to you still had to work at it. Um, right. So, yeah. I had to I had to go to navigator training. I had to get my private pilot's license. I had to convince the Air Force to send me to pilot training. I had to finish high enough in pilot training to pick the assignment I wanted. And then after that, and I had to go against career advice to pick the assignment I wanted. And then those things led to the opportunity to go fly the F-16. So there was luck and timing in it, but there was also choices and decisions and hard work. And then... Like you said, all you get is the opportunity. I didn't realize when I first um, got the opportunity to fly the F-16 what I was getting myself into. Mm -hmm. I had no understanding of fighter pilot culture and how um, accepting or unaccepting they were going to be towards me when I showed up. So that was a whole other level of work, not just the level of work to go through F-16 training, but to go through F-16 training um, with everybody watching you and wondering how you're going to do, and some people not wanting you there, and some people very obviously not wanting you there. Um, so there was different, there was different types of work for me to get to be an F-16 pilot, and it was, it was challenging to say the least, yeah. So what was that like? Um, you, you knew what you wanted, but because you were a girl, you couldn't 
do what you wanted, but then it kind of, the opportunity came your way. What was it like? Because like, like I said earlier, being in the military, no matter what your job is, it's a predominantly male environment still, but then even, but then, then being a fighter pilot is, is even more so male dominating and type A, because you, you really do have to work and fight to be the best at whatever you're doing. What was that like when that, when that door opened for you to go and fly what you wanted to, and then having to fight to accomplishment, accomplish it, knowing that there were people right there, fellow students, fellow pilots or already pilots that didn't want you there because you're a girl. What, what was that like? Yeah, that was, um, it was really hard for me. I'm a, yeah, it was really hard. And I didn't expect it. I just was naive. I was probably a little naive. And as I learned more, I realized it was going to be kind of a struggle and there was going to be a little bit of a battle. And how I responded to that initially was just put more stress and pressure on myself. As I considered it as the first woman in the F-16, I need to succeed. I need to pave the way for the people, the women that want to also come fly this jet, right? And if I don't do well, then people are going to point and look at me and go, see, we told you, women should not be fighter pilots. This is a bad idea. We don't need these social experiments, right? You hear that about military all the time. We don't need these social experiments. Well, yeah, sometimes we do. Um, so luckily for me, there was one or two people everywhere I went initially that supported me. And what I finally figured out at F-16 training when I was struggling because I was putting so much pressure on myself was that I needed to quit worrying about what everybody thought. I needed to quit worrying about other people's opinions of me. And I needed to just fly the damn jet um, and do the best I could. And what that came down to, I don't know if you've heard the saying, it's a, those who matter don't mind and those who mind don't matter. And that basically became my mantra about halfway through F-16 training because there's, I just couldn't worry about it anymore. My husband supported me. My family supported me. I had one or two of my classmates that would help me out. You know, I had one instructor, two instructors that I could felt like I could go talk to that would be helpful. And I just focused on them and I just ignored everybody else and just went about my business. And, and that was the best thing I could have done because once I took that pressure off myself. I mean, the other pressure is still all there, but once I took the pressure off myself, I was able to perform better, right? I was able to fly better. I was able to do better. And then things just start falling, you know, in, in line in a good way, as opposed to starting this downward spiral in a bad way. So I was, um, I was fortunate that there were people that were there to support me. And then, you know, when I left training and I went off to my first uh, combat assignment, it was the same way. There were definitely people there who didn't want me there, but there were definitely people who said, what's the big deal? You know, and you just have to find your support where you can. Yeah, that, that's a lot. And, and that, yeah, I have heard that saying, and it, it really is. I mean, I'm sure that feeling the transition of uh, within yourself of 
being so focused on what other people thought to going from that mindset to the mindset of, you know what, forget it. I'm going to do me, whatever that looks like, and I'm going to go after it. Did you feel that transition internally? And you're like, I think you said it was more freeing. Yes, definitely. Um, it took, it's, it's a difficult place to get to. And I don't think you get to that place without having a lot of challenges along the way. Right. But at some point, if you're trying to do something unique and unusual and different and, and really trailblazing, then you're going to have those challenges. And the way I responded to that was, yeah, I, I basically over when I was at a point where I was really struggling at F-16 training, I just sat down and I, I thought about, well, how am I going to do this? You know, I've got to do this. What what is what do I what can I change to make this work better? And, you know, the way it sounds now, I know that's a very old saying, but the other way I like to talk about it is. I get to decide who gets inside my head, right? We all get to decide who we let in there, whose little voices we choose to listen to, right? So when you're deciding who, who you're going to let inside your head, pick the good people, right? And, and throughout my career, um, I, I learned to choose my battles. I'm sure you saw the same thing, because like you said, the military is a, is a very much a male-dominated field. And there's people who are not going to appreciate you. There's always going to be those people. Some of them are worth talking with and some of them are not, right? So I would choose my battles based on a few different things. One, first of all, was the, if it's based on somebody's comment or something they say or something they do, was it intentional? Or were they just not paying attention or do they just don't understand, right? That's the first thing. And then if I engage with this person to try and help them understand, is it worthwhile? Are they going to be receptive? If they're not going to be receptive, then I'm not going to bother to engage because I don't need to beat my head against that brick wall, right? It's just not worth it. And then what you do is you, you welcome the people who give you, like they would any fighter pilot coming into the squadron, and they give you that initial acceptance. So that's great. And then you take the other people, which tend to be for me like the, I, I like to describe it like a bell curve, you know? Like you got the little bit, the extremes on each end. And on one end is the people who go, we don't care. It's no big deal. And on the other end are the people who go, there is no way this is never going to work. And in between are the kind of, let's wait and see, right? Well, I'm not so sure about this, but let's see if she can actually fly. Let's see, right? And those are the people you spend your time and energy on. And you do that, I found, um, really through performance. You know, being a fighter pilot's very, we talked about it being competitive. We talked about aviation being kind of competitive. So if you can get out there and fly the jet and be a good wingman, be a good flight lead and drop your bombs on target, then majority of the fighter pilot community is going to accept you because you can do the job. They can trust you, right? And those other, those other little bit that say it's never going to work, it's, you're never going to convince them anyway. So I just don't spend, you couldn't spend your energy on them. So as you, you know, as you look at it now and having that impact, like you said, being a trailbla trailblazer for women, being able to fly and be fighter pilots, you know, and you mentioned, you mentioned that you wanted, you know, you knew that like some, the future of women fight, okay, rewind, Tiffany, I'm going to cut that, <laughs> my stumbling out, trying, I know what I want to say. <laughs> when you mentioned that you knew your personal success or failure 
at being able to fly an F-16 for of women being able to fly an F-16 was dependent upon your personal success. Um, outside of that, did you really ever think about I'm going to be the first female F-16 pilot. Was that a thing that was going through your mind at that time? Or was it just a, I want to let people know that women can do this too? How, how what, was, what was your thought process? Yeah, it was never, it was never a goal of mine to be the first anything. It really wasn't. I mean, I would have much preferred probably to be the fifth or sixth because it was a lot easier. <laughs> um, so I don't think that you know, being, we talked earlier about luck and timing, being the first at anything is really a matter of timing. And then it's a truly a matter of perseverance because there's very few first anythings that have an easy go at it, right? I mean, I'm, I'm a huge Dodger fan and I love Jackie Robinson. And you listen, I mean, you know his story. He, he didn't have an easy time of it either, right? And we look back at that now and think, oh, how silly. Why did people treat him that way, right? Well, it's the same thing now. The majority of the fighter community doesn't have any issue at all with women fighter pilots. But in 1994, it was a big deal, right? So my goal really was to, first and foremost, be a good F-16 pilot. Secondly, do as much as I could to, if not fit in with the culture, not overtly try and change it too much, if you will. And I've kind of heard sometimes, you know, it would have been easier for some of the people behind us if we would have done more. And, I'm, and our answer to that is, my answer to that is, trust me, I was doing all I could, right? Um, so it's still been a little bit of an evolving process. Like they're, they're still working towards some um, equipment issues, physiological issues. You know, women tend to be smaller in stature. So your, your survival vest that I wore, anytime I would actually fly a combat mission, I would fly a survival vest. I was like, the Michelin man and I could hardly move, right? Because it doesn't fit right. It's not built for my size because I'm only 5'4". Um, so those kind of issues are still being addressed, which is surprising because it's, you know, 30 years later, but um, it's, that's the way it goes, right? Because these things, this kind of, first we just, first we just fly the jet and fit in and we don't complain a lot. Um, one of the funny stories from uh, my F-16 training is, so F-16 is a, is a 9G airplane. And before that, I'd only ever pulled, I think seven point something in the T-38, 7.2 Gs. And a G is, for those of you that aren't familiar with it, it stands for the gravitational force of the earth. And we normally spend our life at one G. And if you've ever ridden a roller coaster and you get that squished down in your seat feeling, that's what pulling Gs feels like. Roller coasters are about three to three and a half Gs and F-16 can pull nine Gs. And we did on a regular basis. So we had G-suits, we had equipment for that, right? Well, so when I first went to F-16 RTU and we started air-to-air -air fighting, we were pulling nine Gs on a regular basis. I got bruises on my ribs from my G-suit. I'm like, well, this is getting kind of painful because every time now you already have bruises and you your G-suit inflates and it's pushing on them more, right? So I finally asked one of my classmates that was a pretty nice guy and I said, hey, what, are you getting any bruises from your G-suit? What's going on? He's like, no. So I went and talked, I go, no. And he's like, no, you shouldn't be getting bruises. I'm like, oh, okay. So I go and talk to my life support people, the people that make our, uh, take care of all our life support equipment. And they're like, no, let's see how that fits. And sure enough, because I'm not tall, you know, five, four, like I said, on a good day, um, there's, a, there's a bladder across your stomach on the G-suit 
And it's built for, there's one size fits all on that bladder, right? If you have a small G suit, you get this size. Well, that's too big for me. So it was riding up on my ribs where it shouldn't have been, pushing on my ribs, causing bruises, right? Well, I had really good life support people in my, in my squadron and they investigated ways to fix that and they found the way to fix it and it was legal and they had to do a lot of work and I had to go back to the centrifuge, which is where they spin you around and do lots of Gs, but that was okay. Because now I had a G suit that was modified that I could wear that would perform and we knew it would perform and it wouldn't hurt me, right? But that's probably the biggest wave I ever made. And it was only because it hurt, right? There's no, there was, you know, flying in a single seat airplane, um, men have a little easier time going to the bathroom than women do, right? Well, I will tell you that I flew at least two eight hour sorties without ever going to the bathroom in the airplane. Probably not the best thing. You might be a little dehydrated. Um, so those issues are being addressed through time, but I didn't take the time and energy to address those because I was busy um, just working on credibility, right? Just trying to establish the fact that women can do this and, and we will be an asset to the Air Force this way. And that's what I try to bring forward whenever we talk about um, social experiments in the military. Because you hear that, um, you hear that when we integrated, you heard that when we brought women into combat, you heard that when we brought women into pilot training, which was just in the 70s, by the way. Um, we heard that when we when we are become more and more tolerant of people with different sexual orientation. The military is no place for these social experiments. I actually had somebody tell me that. And I'm like, well, here's the thing. The military needs the best people it can get to defend our country. The best people, period, right? So if I finish in pilot training number three in my class, why should the guy that's number four, five, six, or seven in my class go get a fighter instead of me? I've demonstrated over the last year that I'm a better pilot than he is, right? So that's what I try to make sure people understand is there's no, there's no quotas. We still have so few women fighter pilots. We're, we're like less than 5% of fighter pilots are women. Very, very small numbers. So it's, it's not like there's quotas. It's just people going through pilot training, qualifying to do different jobs. And then they go do them. And it's just not that big a deal. General, General Brown, the, the current chief of staff of the Air Force, he has a commercial out. It's probably pretty old now, maybe six months or nine months old. And it's basically General Brown sitting in a hangar and he's talking about um, the military. And he talks about the fact that that, you know, they don't know, the jet doesn't know, and the enemy doesn't know. Whether you're a man or a woman, black or white, who cares? Asian, it doesn't matter. The jet doesn't know, the enemy doesn't know. They just know there's an American airman coming to kick your butt. And I love that sentiment. It's so much better than what the chief of staff had to say when he was introducing us at the press conference in uh, 1993. So, I mean, yeah, the, the overall attitude has changed and I think it's changed for the better. And I think it just makes our Air Force better and our military stronger. What is it, what was it like when you retired and what it's like now, when you look back at the, not at the waves that you made because you didn't insert yourself into being an F-16 pilot, but when you look back and see the changes that were made with women in aviation 
specifically as a combat pilot, what do you, what comes to mind? What do you think about? What is it, what does it feel like to know that because of you successfully graduating the F-16 pilot training and becoming a fighter pilot, how does that make you feel now as you look back at that and the number of women that are now in those fighter positions because you were part of saying, we can do it too? Yeah. Um, well, I will say that I'm, you know, as I've gotten a little more separated from it, I'm, I'm probably a little more proud of what I did than when I was in the Air Force. And I just, you know, you're just plugging along doing your job. Um, but I will tell you that I've heard from lots of people. Uh, I still have most, my very, very good friends, like part, pretty much my family are from my first F-16 assignment. So they have, they were my friends then and they're still my friends. I've talked to previous students. I've talked to other women fighter pilots. Um, and, it's, and just being able to go through there first and set the tone that I just want to be a fighter pilot. I just want to do my job, right? And that was a big deal. I didn't go there to make waves. I didn't go there to stir everything up and cause problems. I just went to be the best F-16 pilot I could be. And yes, it has helped. And, and then it has, and women have come through more and more and they've been accepted off the bat and they haven't had to fight those same battles because of the work that others of us have done. Now they're getting the opportunity to address some of those other issues like um, life support gear and you know survival vests and those kind of things and making sure that they have all the equipment they need. And I see that and that's very encouraging. Um, yeah. And I, I know that I, I, we talked to, a, uh, I made a LinkedIn post about it, but there's, you know, the new Top Gun Maverick movie, right? Well, they have Phoenix Trace in there and she's a Top Gun graduate. And although there's, you know, it's, it's a movie, it's Hollywood. I really appreciated how they put her in there. I think she was portrayed very realistically. As in there's the one guy in the group who's given her, you know, a little grief every once in a while, but the majority of them are accepting and they just, joke around with each other like they do everybody else right and she does her job and she just wants to do her job and she's not a prima donna and she's not trying to do you know she's not trying to say oh look at me she's just being a fighter pilot and I really like that because one thing that one other thing I found in my time in the military and this is true still there's nothing we're going to do about this for ages is um there's not very many women fighter pilots so people always know what you're doing they know what your next assignment is. They know, you know, if you messed up something on the bombing range, they know if you did something really good, they know just because they know, right? There's for when I retired from Shaw Air Force Base, there were two other women fighter pilots on that base. We had three squadrons and that's the most I'd ever had on a base with me. We had three. I was like, Ooh, look at this. So it's, I talk about it like it's a double-edged sword, right? Because everybody always knows what you're doing. So if you do something good, that's great. But if you're struggling, it's not so great because everybody always knows what you're doing, right? So it goes back to that. Um, even for our current women fighter pilots, there's less pressure on them, but there's still all the visibility that goes with it, right? You're just not going to be able to hide from that. Uh, you know, we had out at Luke, we probably had, when we had nine squadrons out there, we probably had four or five instructors at one point that were women out of over 200. So people are always going to know what you're doing. <laughs> there's no hiding. There's no hiding. Until you put on the helmet, 
and you get in a jet and then you pull down the EOR and the crew chiefs don't know who you are and that, you know what I mean? That's when you're just a fighter pilot. You mentioned earlier yeah, that, that really is a double-edged sword. I mean, I've heard, I've heard pilots talk about, um, gosh, I know what we would call it in the army. I guess after you fly a mission or an exercise or training or whatever, you, you know, you go to the hangar or wherever and you debrief. debrief. Yes. Mm -hmm. Um, And you're that, that can be, that can be perceived as brutal if, if you made a mistake. Um, But, and you, and and I would, I would imagine that being vulnerable and say, you know what? Yeah, I screwed up here. My bad would, would make it, a lot easier just to say yep I screwed up how can I do better at it great let's move on and go to what's next because not one person can honestly say out of all the debriefs we've done I've never had an issue you're somebody you're gonna screw up something at some point whether no matter how significant or insignificant it is so that but it can be brutal there are there are no perfect flights there's no perfect flights. Yeah. Um, but the key really is to uh, own your mistakes, like you mentioned. Um, don't try to hide them. Don't try to explain them away. Right? They're your mistakes. And now the thing is, we're really big on every time we debrief, we end up with three or four lessons lessons learned, we call them. Right? And some of them, I mean, so if we just make some little administrative mistakes, we'll talk about those, but we don't, those aren't lessons. Right? It tends to be something bigger than that that you've that you've done wrong, and then we figure out okay, so how do we want to do this better next time so that doesn't happen? And that's the key. I mean, because we'll go fly for an hour and we'll debrief for three hours, which is painful sometimes. Those are very expensive airplanes, and every time we go fly, it's very expensive. So we want to learn um, the most we can out of those opportunities, and then we have to come up with what our lessons learned are, and those are the things, no kidding, that we take forward. Um, and we, you know, almost all fighter pilots, especially in training, are keeping a little book of, of, you know, your flights and what you've done well and what you need to work on. And so, I mean, I, I always make mistakes, but I try to make original ones, you know, something that I didn't, I don't like to repeat the same mistake over and over. You're going to make some kind of mistake, but you don't want it to be um, something that you did wrong on the last flight. You want to do something different. I like you that. Know, that's well, even awesome. at Southwest Airlines, we would joke, you know, there's no even, I mean, it's a much less demanding environment, much less demanding, but you still make mistakes. So you miss a radio call or you, you know, you, I don't know, whatever it is, you type something wrong in the, in the computer, you do something wrong. We're human, right? Commercial airplanes have two pilots. It is, it's, it's difficult, but, you know, we, we talk a lot. Um, when I talk with people now about the difference between confidence and cockiness, right? Um, most fighter pilots, if not all, are confident, but we have to be confident, right? We have to be confident that we can go out there and do our job when we're, you know, flying as fast as we are and doing as many different things at once. But cockiness will get you killed, right? You don't want to be cocky. You don't want to pretend like you never make mistakes. You don't want to expect, act like you're perfect because then you're not learning you're not progressing, you're not getting better. And when you make a mistake, you can get somebody killed. And it's gonna be more likely to happen if you're cocky than if you're just confident and keep working to make yourself better. I, I was just using the word arrogant instead, but same mm-hmm. principle. Um, 
and finding that that balance because I do think being confident and secure and knowing what you're doing and how to do it is indeed important no matter what you're doing in life. I'm like, yeah, yeah you're right. Let's see. That's very much a that's very much a fighter pilot thing, and we sometimes do get ourselves in trouble. Um, with when we interact with people who aren't fighter pilots. And I had to really change the way I interacted once I got to Southwest Airlines a little bit because we tend to be very direct in general. Mm-hmm. And because we're used to working in a very um, time compressed environment, we don't often take the time we should to um, frame things properly, if you will. Right? But in addition to being kind of perfectionist. So you add all that up together. Sometimes you can come across as um, arrogant or sometimes you can come across as just annoying. But realistically- Bitching Betty was not just a name, huh? Not you, but isn't that what the voice is? Is Bitching Betty or whatever? Yeah, okay. Yep, yep. I'll tell you that story. I'll tell you that story in a minute. But we have to be careful how we present those things to people who aren't used to working with fire pilots, right? That's all. Because knowing Tammy the way I do, she would only even bring that up to you because she would think you would want to know. Yeah. That's all, right? And she would never go, hey, I don't think you did a crappy job. It's just like, hey, you might want to think about changing this before you publish it because I saw this, this, this. Yeah. And she's she's doing it out of kindness. Yeah, she she very much so did. Absolutely. And now that I know her better, it, it definitely validates exactly what you just said about her. Yeah. She, um, I mean, it's easy. I, and I think it really, it was just my insecurity because knowing that I'm new, well, I was new to podcasting because it was last summer, last spring or summer that we did her episode. Yeah. Um, and honestly, I, I didn't really take it the wrong way either because that's kind of my attitude too. I am a very direct person. Like I don't sugarcoat anything because, you know, and, and it's for some people it's offensive. Like you could have been nicer about it. I'm like, sure. I could have, but do you question what my point was? No. Okay. There you go. Yeah. Like I, I just, I've always, even, even before the military, I've always hated it when somebody says something to you and it's so sugarcoated and beating around the bush that you you think you know what their point is, but maybe you're a little unsure because, well, did they mean this or that? And and so when she pointed out, you have these gaps of space in here, you better believe every episode that I've published since then, I am visually even looking for gaps of space. <laughs> and it might even be only a half second, but I'm making sure it's only a half second, not like a half minute. Yep. Because she took the time to let me know, hey, I noticed this. It needs to be fixed. Because if she didn't say anything about mm-hmm. it, her episode would still be out there with several large gaps of space. Because I neglected to do my follow through right. and whatever else. So speaking of names, as we just kind of alluded to. So so you... I've learned a little bit about how call signs come about. How did you acquire the name Betty? And please don't tell me it has anything to do with Bitch and Betty. Or maybe it does. I don't know. (laughs) There's like a million ways to get call signs. Normally, there's something you've done in that first few months that will get you a call sign. 
Um, now, in my case, there were, like I said, everybody was still watching me pretty closely. So I, they had to find some kind of call sign that they could give me that was still um, politically correct, if you will, right? They couldn't call me, like we have so many times we have uh, <laughs> women whose call sign is mounds. Peter Paul, right? Almond Joy's got <laughs> Almond Joy's got nuts. Mounds don't. <laughs> so there's those kind of call signs that are out there, and a lot of times they're acronyms, right, for things. Well, when I was at F16 training, we do have the voice management system in F16. It's called Pitch and Betty. And when I was at training, um, somebody told me, suggested this to me, and I was too chicken to do it because I was have enough of a time in training. Um, the way we fight in F16 generally to train. We have a simulated floor, right? Just like just like in the Maverick movie, you know, you can't go below the hard deck. So in this case, let's say it's 10,000 feet, then you would set your altitude warning system at like 1,500 or 2,000 feet above that because you're going to be looking over your shoulder or you're going to be looking around and you're not going to be looking at your altitude. And that would go off and it would go altitude, altitude. And then you would know that you're getting close to the ground. You'd glance in and see what that, you know, and you'd go about your business and you do what's called a floor transition. So. After I got to Germany, when I was getting checked out, um, I decided I'd give that a try. So we're in Dutch Umanu um, doing some air to air and I'm offensive. So we're still about probably 3000 feet above the floor. And I go, I just come over our Victor radio, go altitude, altitude. And the guy starts his floor transition, which means he levels off. And now I can dive down because there's energy going down and pull my nose out in front and shoot him. So that's in the, if you're not cheating, you're not trying world of fighter pilots. Um, <clears throat> so although they probably wanted to call me bitch and Betty, they only called me Betty because once again, political correctness. Um, yeah, and see, so, I was kidding as soon, because I remember as soon as I saw Betty, I was like, I wonder if there's a correlation here. I guess so, I but I didn't think it was actually, yeah. It's funny though. Um, I don't think they haven't named anybody else Betty. I'm like, I'm the I'm an original, the one and only so far that I know of. So and isn't she? Uh, it seems like recently, maybe within the past year, isn't she retiring soon? I think she passed away. Actually, oh, passed away. Okay, the lady that did that voice. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I wasn't sure what it was. Man, darn it! I wish you. See, I need to start. I need to start looking at people and be like, okay, you're this person's maybe kind of up there in age. Let me grab them before. <laughs> <laughs> it's too late. Like I remember thinking, I would love to have Betty White um, on a you know somebody like Betty White. Oh who, yeah, who had some time in the military and is hilarious. I love her. Yeah. Um, and then that last November, I think, or December, November, December, she passed away. I just thought, man, and it was I think it was right before her one hundredth birthday. Um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, um, so you, yeah. Man, now maybe you can say, hey, can we insert, now that it's okay or politically correct, can we insert the bitching part now? I'm good with that. <laughs> now can I steal that name? Um, it always confuses people, though, because it's like a real name. Most yeah. call signs are not real names. Right. Right? So they're like, is that your real name or is that, you know? Yeah. I mean, yeah, Jim, uh, Jamie, Tammy told me about hers. I was like, oh, that's just stupid. I mean, apparently being politically correct was not. No, not a thing anymore. Yeah, no, not a bit. 
Um, I, I, all right, so I have another question since you mentioned, well, two questions since you mentioned the Top Gun Maverick movie. I went and saw that as well. And of course, I have questions because I can't look at it like you can and be like, oh, that's not real or that's real. Um, I've, I've, I, that movie made me wonder what is this floor? What does it mean? What is that floor imaginary? It's, whatever when you're training when you're training it's 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 an artificial um simulated ground so if the floor is 500 feet and you go below 500 feet then you're dead simulated dead so you didn't you didn't accomplish the mission so that's when they talk about a floor so it's just that's a simulation for training but nothing is does that happen in real missions too like in they say missions, they have the ground <laughs> okay well i mean i didn't know like like I'm, I'm thinking specifically like with I was about to be like you guys and call her Casey. I don't, I, I was talking to one guy. And I'm like y'all are calling each other by each other's call signs. I don't know who's who and what's what. Okay, but um, but with Kim's story, um, of her in Baghdad in 2003. I mean, I, I think about that kind of thing. Like, or, or not even her specifically, but at any point. When you're going to, you're going after to shoot your target and you get to whatever that point is, is that kind of part of a floor thing too, where it's like, I don't need to go be below this yes. particular the, altitude. Generally, the, the rules of engagement, you know, the basically the, the rules that dictate what we can and can't do in the combat situation will have a floor. Okay. Now, and that's a, that's a rules of engagement thing not just a, a pilot thing or aviation mm -hmm. thing no they, they will i mean pilots are involved in setting them because they'll set them realistically they help write those rules but that's where you'll find what you can and can't do okay so then, okay sorry and even like in training when you're um on the bombing range and you're strafing so you're shooting the machine gun right then you're going to end up with a floor that you can't go below okay so even training you'll have those rules and that's a safety thing right you don't mm -hmm. want people to you can be and those in training they'll generally be higher than slightly higher than they will be really in combat um but for the sake of practice maybe yeah for yeah. the sake of safety and mm -hmm. you're not really like saving some guy on the ground's life so you don't need to be yeah quite as aggressive and then you that's you awesome as necessary yeah and like i said some of those things came up as questions the other thing that came, uh, that i was curious about and you talked a little bit about it when you were talking about the um the bladder in your suit um like so no i, I don't know anything except i'm glad you used the roller coaster example because i don't really know what to compare it to so what i would imagine there's a lot of pilots who maybe have a lot of whiplash issues because of that. I mean, I, maybe I'm making stuff up and I'm okay with that. Oh, I no, F-16 pilots in general, most of us have neck issues of some kind. Or another. Yeah. It's not really whiplash as much as it's just... Um, the pressure, maybe? Yeah, well, we tend to turn our heads around a lot. Okay. And, and if your head weighs eight or nine times what it normally does, it's mm. hard on your discs. Okay. So now, theoretically, you want to try to unload a little bit so you don't have as much G on when you turn your head, but most of us don't always do that. Yeah. 
(laughs) (laughs) So what is it like? What one, what is it like? And do you ever get used to it with flying at whatever G-force? I mean, obviously you, you were experiencing the bruising on your your ribs but that was because mainly because of the not fitting properly but what is it like experiencing that and how does it impact your ability or what you have to adjust in flying so it's just more physically demanding because the way you combat the g-forces is by the whole reason you wear a g-suit that inflates is so you have something to strain against the g-suit doesn't help the blood stay at your brain your muscles do by squeeze your muscles really hard in your stomach and it helps force the blood back up. So you keep, the whole idea is to keep the blood going to your brain so you don't pass out, right? Pretty simple. Um, But it's, you do build up G-tolerance. You know, if you haven't flown for a long time, your G-tolerance is going to be lower than if you're flying every day. Um, And obviously the technique of G-straining. And you will find a lot of times when people struggle in training with G-tolerance, it's because um, we have, (laughs) I was saying when I'm teaching it, that people's brains get full. They just can't handle one more thing to do, right? And they get so focused on dropping their bomb or shooting or doing the, the combat maneuver that they're supposed to do that they don't keep the strain going. And then that's when they get in trouble, right? Um, so there's that causes G-lock. There's also just sometimes being tall and skinny is not the best thing to be for a fighter pilot because you've got a lot more distance for the blood to travel from your it's heart. It's called your G-lock? Yeah, G-lock, G-induced loss of consciousness. Oh, okay. Actually had a, I, that happened to one of my students once. Okay. It's scary. Um, and then, but, you know, what is the other physical portion of that is we get things we call jeezles. And we call them that because they're, they look like measles, basically, and there'll be little spots. And they're basically burst blood vessels against your, on your legs from your G-suit, from where you're straining against it. So it's, it is very demanding. Pulling G's is physically demanding. Um, but I will tell you that if you pull your airplane straight up, like Tom Cruise did, in the pull, you pull G's. But going straight up is 1G. Once you get your angle done, the G-forces all come in the, in the turning and the angling. So once okay. he's going straight up and he's still straining away, he didn't need to do that. See, what happened was... <laughs> Um, so you use, well, before I even do that, I was going to ask about using your experiences for your, a lot of your speeches that you do, speeches, talks, presentations. Um, but before I ask that, you, you mentioned earlier, transitioning from a military fighter pilot to flying for Southwest, what was that transition like? Because I know in the military, like you mentioned, you and I can talk to each other a certain kind of way. And we're, we're accustomed to it because of that military background. But at Southwest, yeah, not so much. So how was that transition for you? Um, it, was, it was okay. I had some time um, in the C-21, so that was at least had similar aircraft systems a little bit. Um, but then it's just a matter of being, you're not, you know, you can't talk like a fighter pilot when you're talking to customers or flight attendants or sometimes even your captain or your first officer. So you just basically tone down your, you tone your language back down to what is normally socially acceptable. Um, and you work to be more pleasant and just kinder and, you know, take people's feelings into consideration more because we don't do that a lot as fighter pilots. 
Um, but if no you way. take off your flight attendants in the first first flight of the day, you're going to be miserable all day. I mean, there's no point in it. So you just try to be a little kinder and gentler. Wow. How feelings. They're just peelings. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you have, don't, I think it's like you have like two or three main presentations that you make from your experience, right? Mm -hmm. I do. So can you talk three, about actually. those or three? Sure. Okay. So yeah. can you talk a little bit about those? Yeah, I would love to. Yeah. Um, the first one that I, that I do is called follow your dreams. And it's basically uh, my story from being a little girl on my first airplane ride to getting fly F-16s. And it's a story that goes through some of the challenges I faced and some of the things I learned, you know, like you get to decide who gets inside your head. Um, those kind of things that you can take forward with you. I have another one called uh, Debrief Your Life, Live Better, which we talked a little bit earlier about fighter pilot debriefs, right? And what I've found is that I tend to do this with big events in my life, and I find it helps. If you have some um, big event in your life and you debrief it, and you sit down and you think about it objectively, and you own your mistakes, and you figure out what you want to do differently next time, you can go forward with some lessons. And I basically go through a lot of my, um, as I do that speech, I go through debriefing some of my lessons from my flying career, um, including things like, you know, uh, courage and resiliency and those type of things. And just a good understanding of how thinking about your life and making conscious decisions about what you want to change can have a huge impact. And then the third one is called inclusion everyone all the time. And it goes through kind of my unique perspective of being the first and often the only uh, woman in a squadron or in a, in a work environment, even at Southwest Airlines, and how it really takes everyone to build that inclusive environment. And it's not just, you know, we can't just rely on the people in the similar group, um, but it also, the key for me to that presentation is not so much the similar group, but the all the time portion because I've found that some of our women fighter pilots are still fighting some of the same um, attitudes that I've fought because when there's not a woman around for a long time, people tend to regress back to um, more locker room like behavior. And what you'll find is if you, if someone new shows up to your, your unit, your company, your office, and you have to change your behavior because of that person, you're gonna resent that. You're gonna resent that person. And then they're not going to feel welcome and they're not going to be able to produce as much and be as good a part of your team. So if we can create an environment, a professional environment that doesn't require you to change your behavior when people show up, then you're going to build that inclusive environment. And once you, in, once you have a truly inclusive environment, then diversity will follow because the diverse people will feel welcome. And then I also, in that speech, like to talk about the important role of the diverse person um, because choosing your battles is important. Right? I have so many examples of things that I could have done differently that would have turned out really poorly if I would have um, engaged with people when I didn't. Um, so just giving people benefit of the doubt, right? Choosing your battles and, uh, and just making sure your performance is good because whether you like it or not, when you're one of the few people are judging your group, whatever your group is, based on your performance. So those Three times 
um, to civilian organizations and it's gone over pretty well. Of those, do you have a favorite one? They're all my stories and I like them. Um, I really like the, the, I like all of them. I truly do. Um, my favorite is probably just the follow your dreams because I like to, while I love speaking to corporate audiences, um, especially since that's, you know, college students don't pay a lot to, for you to talk to them. Um, but I like speaking to young people as well and just encouraging them and motivating them to do what they want to do in life and to not let people tell them no. And when people tell you, tell you no, then you say, oh, well, I guess I won't go through you then. I'll go this way instead, right? And finding those ways. And, and so based on my life and the things I've done, I find I can, I can present those that pretty well and I can be motivational. So I enjoy that one the most because I tend to give it to younger people. Um, but I have given all three of them and, and I enjoy doing all of them. I mean, they're just, uh, it, it just depends on the audience and I tend to tailor them a little bit to the audience as well. So I really enjoy it. Thank you and have a nice day. Roger that. Thank you and have a nice day.